0: Good morning. I bring you greetings from Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., just down uh, the road a bit. It's always a pleasure to worship with you all. I was going to say that your church, your worship service functions almost identically to the one in which I pastored for 10 years, except one key difference that I discovered just now, which is the preacher always leaves at the last stanza. (laughs) to come and to, to preach at the pulpit. So that was a bit quick on the draw for for here. But otherwise, it's always a privilege to be here. It reminds me of my church home, and I've been able to count many of you as well as friends and students. And so it's a pleasure to worship with you. Also, Paul Wolf uh, promised me my mug back that I left here last, last time. So that's a twofer. Uh, we are in Matthew 16. It's a critical moment in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, so critical is this moment in time that Mark builds his whole gospel account around it. Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Mark uh, highlights it by organizing his gospel around it. Matthew highlights it in a slightly different way. He pairs it with um, some follow-up stories in uh, 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 20-paragraph... Beginning on 21 and on 24. Uh, And we're going to be focused on Peter's confession and Jesus' immediate response. But I want to get those two paragraphs in there as well. So a longer passage for us. But what this passage does is give to us this critical moment in Jesus' own ministry where he begins. uh, We actually read about it in Psalm 24. Uh, Jesus is about to enter into the, into Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, the, that the King of glory may come in. This moment is Jesus preparing himself and his disciples for that moment when he enters in the Jerusalem and comes into his city. Uh, let's read then, starting in uh, chapter 16, starting in verse... Thirteen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Why do people say, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John, and others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So then Jesus told his disciples, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, we pray as we consider the wilderness world in which we walk, as we consider the challenges and struggles and the weakness of the flesh, the frailty of our wills and souls, we, we pray that you would come quickly. But should you linger, we pray that you would give us strength, the strength that only your Son can provide, the strength of this heavenly city that we might welcome, love, serve, bless the world around us as we long for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. It's a critical moment for Jesus, but it's also a critical moment for Peter. Peter gets a title here. Uh, Peter sounds like Petra, rock. And Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Peter gets a promise here for naming Christ, naming Jesus as the Christ, as the promised Messiah. Peter gets a warning here as well, and he gets a warning because Jesus knows that this is a critical moment for Peter. Jesus knows that bundled within Peter's good and true confession of himself as the Son of God, of himself as strong and mighty, right? Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. That the king of glory might come in, the king of glory, the king strong and mighty, the king who will conquer his enemies. Jesus knows something that Peter doesn't yet understand, that when he goes through those gates, he is, not, he is strong and mighty, but he's not going to bring strength and might. He's going to bring weakness and sacrifice. He's going to go to the cross and be crucified outside those very gates that he entered Into. And so, what Jesus does at this critical moment is give Peter an image, a picture, a picture, an imaginarium in which he can think and consider the life of the Christian. Because the life of the Christian doesn't look like victory, it doesn't look like comfort and happiness and perpetual joy and unicorns and all of that kind of stuff. It looks like defeat. So often it looks like defeat. This is the second time I've actually preached on this passage. The first time I preached on this passage was just, it was like two days after the Supreme Court ruling about uh, abortion. And this week, it is like four days after the federal raid on the uh, uh, former president's uh, house. And it reminded me, as I was kind of thinking about like uh, the... The Christian life, especially the Christian life in the United States, and as we kind of measure ourselves, it reminded me that the conversation is always about, the political conversation is always about kind of where we stand amongst the principalities and powers of this world. Like we can't get away from the culture wars and Christianity and politics. And a lot of the pundits, when these big events come out, they come out and they say, "Here's, here's what this means. For you as a Christian, this is this is what's indicative for you. These events, this is telling you who's winning the culture war. And while that conversation can be healthy, Jesus, what Jesus does is he reminds us both in our personal life and as we think about the church in the world and the church amongst culture. That the Christian life, that Christianity doesn't look like winning. Jesus doesn't come and promise Peter you're going to get tired of winning. He comes and he promises Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that is a very different kind of promise. It's a promise of victory. But as we think about this imagery of gates, we'll come to appreciate that it is victory at a cost. It is victory only through the cross of Christ. Jesus gives us a picture of two kingdoms here. Hell's gates are strong and mighty. Its doors are shut to make it appear unassailable. But heaven's gates, by contrast, equally strong and mighty, but wide open, calling us to enter. Let's look at these two gates. First, Uh, Then, as Jesus centers his discussion around the gates of hell, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Bible actually gives us precious little about heaven and hell. We, in our own 2,000 years of church history and thinking about these things, we've got a rich theology of heaven and hell. We've got Philosophers and theologians imagining what heaven and hell is like, everything from Dante's Inferno to Harry Potter. You get pictures and ideas of what heaven and hell might be like, what heaven might be like. But we get very little data in Scripture about what heaven and hell is like, and a lot of it comes to us via pictures, via metaphors. We, we want maybe some precise theology. I want to know, I really do want to know, if the second law of thermodynamics is going to be true in the new heavens and new earth. I, really, I actually really want to know that. The Bible doesn't give me physics. It doesn't tell me how Jesus bodily reigns in heavenly space right now. I don't get answers to those kinds of questions. But what God does give me is pictures. And here, Jesus gives Peter a picture, a picture of a gate. Well, how does that help? Well, you've got to use your imagination and think about old cities. You went to the south of France, and so you saw some of those old cities. And then you go to those old cities. We were in the south of England at the beginning of the summer. We saw one of these old cities. And in these old cities, there's a big wall around it. Um, We got to visit. We got to walk on one of the longest remaining roman walls in this old city and be built up now you would uh, this roman wall that was there still remnants of it are there you wouldn't know it's there unless somebody told you why because now the city is built up all around it because that's how we build cities we don't need walls anymore because we have airplanes and so if we're going to defend ourselves from attack we have to defend ourselves with other things walls don't work for that as well as they used to But this is how you would build a city in the ancient world. You build it with big walls. And, of course, if you're going to build it with big walls, you've got to use your brain. Put a gate in that big wall so that people can get in and out. What happens as a result of that is that the gates of a city become a kind of social nexus point. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing at the gates. It becomes... The heart of the city. The heart of the city isn't the Capitol building. It's not the mall. That's where the heart of our cities are built. Our cities are built around malls and places of power. But that's not how the ancient city works. The ancient city, the heart of the city, is actually on the edge. It's at the gates. And this is where you do business. This is where you bring trade. This is where you enter in for protection or go back out to take care of your fields or your farmland. This is where business transactions take place. It's not an accident that Boaz, remember Boaz? Boaz wants to create a scene. He wants to create a scene because he wants it to be publicly uh, ascertainable, publicly reportable that he is now Ruth's kinsman redeemer. So where does he go to create that scene? He goes to the gates because that's where everybody is. And that's where you do things publicly publicly. So that they get talked about and passed on. So the gate here, when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, he's projecting an image. The image of hell as a kind of city, as a kingdom, as a a region that has rulers and powers and a system of government. A kind of community attached to it that's protecting itself itself from outside forces, and that probably does battle in its own turn. It is a community. It is a kingdom that operates in accordance with its own principles, its own character. It's got its own personality. That tells us at least three things about hell. You take this image of Gates. Gates. And we can come to the conclusion that at least three things are true about hell. How does it work? We're told that it is an embattled city. The gates of hell are shut. They're shut against an invading force. This is why you shut gates. It's, you shut the gates at night. Usually you would shut the gates at night to protect the city from outside forces, you shut the gates should the watchmen see danger coming to protect the city. So the gates being shut indicates to us that hell is a kingdom that's embattled, that's currently in a state of war. And in that battle, it's embattled, and in that battle, it exercises a kind of power. It has forces. It has agency. It has weapons of warfare. We actually read about this in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord, put on the full armor of God. One wonderful, beautiful passage, right? The full armor of God passage on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. We got the sword and we dress up and um, uh, we could play, play Ephesians 6 next Halloween, right? Um, It's not a cute passage, actually. We put on the full armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a cosmic battle that we're engaged in. We put on the full armor of God, normal things like prayer, faith and the word. But we put it on because we're battling abnormal things. The devil and the cosmic forces, often hidden in the upside down, often hidden from us. We can't see it. We don't know that they're there. But the battle we wage is against principalities and powers, the forces of darkness in this present age. We are embattled. Why? Because hell has gone to war with the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. What are the weapons of its warfare? We know this from the rest of Scripture. Sin and temptation. The devil is a liar. The devil shows us the fruit. It's good for the eye. Pleasurable. Shows us only part of the truth. The part of the truth that we need to know in order to partake unlawfully. It's the power of darkness, deceit. Hiding from us the true nature of things. It's ultimately the power of death that the devil wields. Hell is tightly associated with death in Scripture. We find throughout the whole Old Testament, sometimes this word will be translated Hades, and you'll see Gehenna in the Old Testament as well. Uh, There's a lot of debate about the precise meaning of each of these words, and are they different regions, or is this different descriptions of the same region? It's hard to know. Again, it's hard to be precise theologically here, but what we can know is that hell contains the keys of its own kingdom, the keys of death. Hell wields the power of death because it wields the power of sin, and the punishment of sin is death. To rebel against the Father of life is to willingly, willfully embrace the power of death in my own life, a power that will eventually enslave me and lead me to darkness. Hell is no joke. It's sometimes presented as a joking matter. But it is no joke. It is a place, a kingdom at war with the people of God, with the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, and it wields weapons that we cannot escape. Sin, darkness, and death. And we who are ruled by nature, ruled by it, have no escape. There is no victory against this force. The walls are too high, and the gates are shut. And outside of Christ, we are inside, trapped, imprisoned, and there is no escape. But Jesus gives Peter a hope. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Here we can consider a different set of gates. Paul projects out for Peter a different kind of city, a different kind of kingdom. Now, it's interesting, he focuses on the gates of hell, but the way the analogy works is kind of a just as, right? There's two. It implies a second kingdom. It implies a second city. It implies a second gate. For there to be a battle, there needs to be two forces. So for the gates of hell to not prevail against the church, what Jesus is, in addition to giving Peter this imaginarium to think about the nature of hell and the cosmic powers that war against the church, he gives Peter a way of thinking about the church. It's a collection of people, yes. It's a community, Yes, it's the body of Christ. Yes, but it's also a kingdom, a city, a city with walls and with gates, just like hell's city. But unlike hell's city, Hell city which, hell's kingdom, which exercises its power through sin, darkness, and death, What Jesus, over the course of his ministry, is trying to teach the disciples, what he transitions to here in the remainder of chapter 16, starting in verse 21, is that the city of God does not work like the cities of man. It does not work like the cities of the devil. Its kingdom is different because it uses a different source of power. A different kind of power is being exercised in the heavenly city rather than the cities of hell. Think again about Psalm 24. See, there's a little we, we we talked about this earlier. There's a little bit of a hitch in trying to understand how Psalm 24 points us to Jesus. On the one hand, it tells us that Jesus that the son that the messiah what what Peter is prompt what Peter is proclaiming when he proclaims Jesus you are the messiah the son of God is that Psalm 24 is true about Jesus. And Peter knows that Jesus is planning to go into Jerusalem. Jesus strong and mighty, Jesus the divine warrior is marching into Jerusalem. And so Peter has every expectation that this is it. This is the moment. This is the moment in which the Father comes armed with the heavenly hosts to cast out the Romans and bring victory to his people, Israel. I mean, that's logical. That's not Peter like making some sort of hermeneutical error. That's what the text says. It says he's going to come into the city, a victorious king, strong and mighty. And he does. He comes, Jesus deliberately, if we go to Mark, Jesus deliberately, the next thing that happens is he gets two donkeys and he goes into the city and we have palm sunday another great dressing up holiday We've got palm sunday which is Jesus victorious march into the city and then what happens over the next week is a gradual definitive defeat of the messiah and Jesus goes willingly he goes passively He doesn't take up his sword and do battle against the betrayers and the Romans. He doesn't call armies to defend the might of Israel and the people of God. In fact, when somebody does pick out a sword and chops off an ear, he tells that person, he tells Peter to put up the sword and he heals the guy. He does the opposite of what Peter, he comes not in strength, not in might, but in weakness. The principal power of the city of God is the paradoxical power of sacrifice. Jesus comes dying a death. Jesus comes in weakness. He dies in our place. He enters that city in order to publicly, he enters those gates in order to die just outside them. Humiliated by the very power that generations of faithful Israelites had been praying to God for for deliverance. Christianity doesn't look like victory. It It looks like defeat. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like weakness. And the reason it looks like that, the reason why it's designed to look like that from beginning to end until the second coming of Christ... It's going to look like weakness because our Lord came in might but died a sinner's death. But that's not the end of the story, right? Of course that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus did it that way, because he did it according to the will of his Father, because he sacrificed himself for his people and for indeed the whole world, He is raised in the newness of life. The third, he he dwells in death for three days, but he is raised in life. A life eternal. Life life that we can't really comprehend. This is why I want to know about the second law of thermodynamics in heaven. Because what we're told about the heavenly regions, what we're told is that you cannot but flourish in heaven. We're told that there is no decay there, there is no death there, there is no weakness there. You only get stronger. You see, everything in this life, everything that we know, our entire experience, life needs other things to live. Life decays unless there's death. In heaven, the opposite is true. Life will not but flourish. I don't have a physics that understands that. Life eternal doesn't map well with quantum theory. So I want to know what that's like. The Bible gives us beautiful pictures. It actually gives us 40 days on earth, Jesus living in his heavenly body. We get beautiful pictures of what our heavenly state will be like. I don't know the details, but it will be life eternal. That's what Jesus accomplished through his sacrificial death. And that's what Jesus offers to you. This is the third aspect of heaven. The power of hell is sin, darkness, and death. The power of heaven is sacrifice, life, and welcome. Turn with me to Revelation 20. Excuse me, 21. John gets this vision of a new Jerusalem. One, Jesus marched into the old Jerusalem. In his resurrection, Jesus enters a new Jerusalem, a new heavens and a new earth, a heavenly Jerusalem that will be an earthly Jerusalem someday. It had great high Walls with 12 gates. 12 gates. This is a Swiss cheese city. There's so many entry points into this. It's like New York City. There's so many entry points into this city. 12 gates. It's prodigal how many gates there are. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lord. Why? Because it's an eternal city. It's eternally protected. Its forces. You can't defeat this. You can't win against it. The forces of hell are sin, darkness, and death. But you see, the force of heaven, the power of heaven, is righteousness, life, and eternity. You can't compete against that. Heaven is secure, it is un- unassailable. City It brings us back to our original text. The gates of Hell will not prevail against the church in that image that Hell is embattled, Hell is under siege. The, its gates are shut heaven 's gates by contrast, are wide open. Hell is the defending force. Why? Because when Jesus sacrificed himself, he brought about newness of life, life which cannot be assailed, life which cannot perish. Life which cannot be taken away. It is an eternal, protected, powerful, mighty city. He went into the first Jerusalem in weakness so that he could go into the second with strength, eternal life, equipping the children of men for battle. We are citizens of the heavenly city If you're not a citizen of the heavenly city Come, find, find peace, find protection It will not look like victory It will look like defeat in this world But you will be protected You will be at peace You will have the comfort of the eternal life That is to come in whatever assails you This world is a world with devils filled Come to the eternal city And find a firm foundation For the lived life For those of you who count yourselves already as citizens of this heavenly city, hear the promise offered to you that you need not fear in this life. I know the culture war is important, but why why do we conduct it with such fear and trembling? We tremble not for them. Why Why are we so stingy with grace? Why are we so angry all of the time? We have a city with 12 gates, all of which are eternally open, welcoming any who would come. We win this war by welcoming the lost, just like Jesus did. We win this war by proclaiming grace, just like Jesus. We win it with the weapons that Jesus gave to us, sacrifice, blessing our neighbor. Loving those around us. Proclaiming truth without fear. And what that eventually does is it saps hell of its own forces. It nullifies the power of hell. And it crumbles from within. As we welcome, as we have open gates, as we as the church and as we as individuals open our gates and receive and welcome and love and sacrifice and serve and bless, even at personal cost, even when it doesn't work, even when it looks like losing, we are sapping hell of its power. How do we know? Because Jesus already did it. He died outside the camp for our sins. And defeated the power of Satan, sin, darkness, and death. And brought in its wake newness of life eternal. Live in hope. Live in gladness. Live in joy no matter what assails us. Live in joy knowing that we are welcome in the heavenly city. Open gates that will never be shut. We have life eternal. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for receiving us. Weak though we are, frail though we are, sinful though we are, you have received us, cleansed us, brought us into the very presence of Christ. You have given to us this perfect inheritance and you've called the church to follow this path. We pray that we would honor Christ and do so. That we would not fear, but we would conduct our lives in exile honorably blessing those who persecute us, loving our neighbor and our enemy as Christ has loved us. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.